Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. This is Make It Kind. M-I-P. With Masamela Mafumo. Mark Thompson. Make It Kind. Get woke. Ladies and gentlemen, we're honored to have in studio with us one of the most prominent leaders in the Black Lives Matter movement, still doing great, great work. Uh, we don't get to talk to him often enough, so we really appreciate this opportunity. DeRay McKesson is here at the studio with us. It's My such an honor to be here. Yeah, it's good to see you, brother. How's things going? It's good. You know, the world's crazy, as you know, yeah, so no, yeah. uh, you don't need that news from me, but there's a lot of interesting stuff happening on the police front. Uh, I think about the police is what animated the protests uh, five years ago, and we've stayed very close to that issue, so uh, that has been really important, and, and we know so much more than we know in 2014. What more do we know now? So big picture, we know that a third of all the people killed by a stranger in the United States is actually killed by a police officer, which is wild. Uh, 2019 was the first year ever where black people were more afraid of being killed by an officer than being killed by community violence. So that had never happened before. And we also know that there's almost no way to get to incarceration that doesn't include the police, right? Mm. So so much of what we think about this issue, there are so many people who sort of focus on mass incarceration but don't ever do anything about the police. And we're like, it's hard to get to jail without the police. Right, the police right. actually become an integral part of that. Uh, so we know what works and what doesn't, too, is that you probably can name the most popular things. Most of the popular things actually have no impact. So implicit bias, no impact on police behavior, community policing, no impact. We, we even think that community policing is racist as a notion, that it's only poor people in, in communities of color where we think that the police have to, like, play football with the kid to treat him like a whole person, mm-hmm. serve him ice cream, all this stuff. They don't need to do that stuff with Timmy on Upper West Side to treat him like a whole person. That's right? true. That's, That's true. actually like sort of racist in, uh, in belief. <laughs> Body cameras, uh, data is inconclusive about an uh, impact on police behavior. So we think they're good in some ways, but like, do they do anything? Huh? Mm-hmm. And training sort of also moot. There are two things that really matter, and the two things that super matter are rules about when officers can use force and when they can't and then rules about accountability. So places like New York is a great example. In, so Garner gets killed in 2014, you know that, we all saw it. 
Uh, in 2016, de Blasio lifted the ban on chokeholds that had been in place since 1993. He lifted the ban on shooting and moving vehicles that had been in place since 1972. And it's no longer a requirement in New York City that officers use the minimum force necessary. That's wild. Wow. And these things actually have a huge impact uh, statistically on whether officers kill or use force. Yeah, absolutely. In terms of the, of the movement, you know, obviously, you know, things have a certain popularity for a while and other things take over the news cycle. Is there, do you think, as much as much focus, as much awareness of what's been going on now that Black Lives Matter is not as ubiquitous as a hashtag as it once was? Yeah, I think that what's interesting is that the work is ubiquitous now. You think about okay. 2014, it was like, it was like people like me were the only people online being like, I think that was racist. I think we need to talk about the police here. Like, I remember going into black communities and having to be like, the police are killing people here. And people told us, me and Nana would go to places and they'd be like, don't bring that mess down here. And we're like, the mess is already here. Yeah. Like, we are just telling yeah. you it's real. So I think that there's like a sea change in terms of like all this focus on incarceration and gender and equity and race. Like, that is huge. Mm -hmm. When I think about the police, it's interesting. I was just talking to somebody the other day. I think that there are a lot of people afraid of the police, like afraid of even sort of attacking the issue of police mm -hmm. violence. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of people who can dream of a world without prisons but can't dream of a world without the police, which is sort of interesting. So I do think there's actually a small set of people who still work on police stuff, a bigger set of people who work on sort of a broad range of incarceration or mm -hmm. justice-related mm -hmm. issues. But the third thing that we know that I didn't say uh, is that the police have killed more people since the protest, not less, which is not good. No. But, uh, and we haven't published this yet, like uh, Sam's working on an article about it, but what we found when we disaggregated the data is that there's been a decrease, a statistically significant decrease in cities, but an increase everywhere else. So a huge increase in police violence in suburban communities, a noticeable increase in rural communities, and then the only decrease is in cities, which mm. is fascinating. So, wow. uh, so it's like a mixed message in terms of is the, is the work getting better? I presume it's been a decrease in the cities primarily because that's where a lot of the focus is and that's where a lot of media is in the main cities as opposed to rural areas, right? So we don't really know why yet, okay. but I think that that is probably part of it. So in the places where there's been a decrease, uh, it has been mostly because of structural change. Like they, they killed somebody, it was a huge story, right. and then something changed. You think about places like Phoenix, Arizona, and Phoenix, Phoenix is a sleeper city when people think about police violence. Most people think LA killed, has historically killed more people than any police department in the country. But LA is also Rodney King, you know, so mm -hmm. they have like a history. Phoenix, you don't really think about Phoenix. Right. In Phoenix last year, one in five murders in Phoenix was committed by an officer. Is that right? That's wild. Yeah. Could you imagine if a gang committed 20% of the murders in a city? Yeah. We would blow, I mean, could you, we would, arrest their family, we right, take all their right, cars, we right, take right, their right, right. houses, we kill them, and it'd be totally fine in the name of public safety, right? Yeah. So yeah. we spend a lot of time on the data, and we actually manage the only comprehensive database of police violence in the country. So you probably know the Washington Post database. Or right. The Washington Post is a famous database. The challenge with the Post database is it only includes on-duty killings that include a gun. Okay. So Garner's not in the database because right. on duty, no gun. Right, right. Botham Jean, not in the database. When mm -hmm. that officer, when she killed Botham mm -hmm. Jean, she was off duty. Off duty, right. Right. So we maintain the only database that's all killings on our off duty, all weapon. That's interesting. This is going back to Phoenix, <laughs> one in five. Yeah, people, if that was a gang, people would be losing their minds, oh. including black folk. Yes. Right? And, and that's one of the things I want to talk to you about because. 
the fact of the matter is we're in this presidential season and everybody talks about the crime bill. They've been talking about it since Hillary ran. Uh, black folk supported the crime bill in 1994, in fairness. I mean, they talk about who supported it, what white elected officials supported, but Congressional Black Caucus members, the black community, I remember distinctly there was support for that. So I think we're still at times seeing those in our own community out of fear of violence or whatever, still not really understanding the police role in that. Yeah, and I think we see people misunderstand what's true and what's not true. What percent of all crime, what percent of all arrests that happen do you think happen for violent crime? Of all the arrests that happen in the country, what percent do you think happen for violent crime? Um, percent happen from violent crime. Like what percent of the arrests that happen in the country happen for violent crimes? Oh, shoot, man. What? A third at the most? It's 5%. Really? It's really low. It's been 5% since 91. This is FBI numbers, not mine. So it's really wow. low. You poll people, and people think it's like, you know, they think violence is like running rampant across America, and it really isn't. So when you think about that, and black people are not immune to this, when you think about this idea that violent crime is everywhere, people are more likely to believe in incarceration and policing because, like, you got to do something with the bad guys. But the reality is that we arrest more people for weed than all violent crime combined, mm. right? Mm. So that's wild. So yeah, there are all these yeah. misconceptions out there that black people, again, are not immune from. And, you know, I am in a lot of communities. I'm with police chiefs some places. And they'll say, are you saying the police should never kill somebody? And I'm like, you know, you know, think of somebody you love. You get that person in your head. Tell me when it's okay for the police to kill that person. Right, like what mistake right. could your cousin, daughter, right. sister make that you'd be okay with the bullet through her eyes? Yeah. Like, I don't know. You know? And if you can't think of that, then like why should another family have to? Correct. Correct. Yeah. It, and, and we have to really think about it like that and, and not deal with it as if it's just routine. But that's part of what oppression does. You know, it becomes internalized. You know, we become anesthetized to it. You know, it just it just continues to happen. Five percent violent crime. That's that's the number of arrests. Arrest. Yeah. So we don't. So what is crime is always like a questionable thing, right? Because right. you you've jaywalked before. You've gone over the speed limit. <laughs> so like you've committed crimes. Right. So we think about like uh, crime data is always who has been arrested because we don't really know like. You know, crime is like this amorphous thing. Wall Street, they've all committed crimes, right? So, but 5% of the arrests for violent crime are for, uh, 5% of the arrests in the country are for violent crime. Slow. More MIP after this message. What up, y'all? It's Torre, author of I Would Die For You, Why Prince Became an Icon. And in just a few weeks, we're going to drop an epic eight-episode podcast about Prince called Who Was Prince, where we talk to his girlfriends, his musicians, his engineers, his managers, all sorts of people who were close to him to find out who he really was. Who Was Prince? Find out on June 21st. In the meantime, follow Who Was Prince wherever fine podcasts are streamed. So we know that the police kill white folks sometimes too. Mm-hmm. And not, let's just say non-black people. Uh, disproportionately, we know. So let me ask you this. Uh, uh, disproportionately, it's black people. Disproportionately, it's black yes, people. Right, right, right. Um, but, but now, let me ask you this. If, for example, police were as deployed in other communities as much as ours, would that number, do you think, 
go up. I mean, part of what's happening with us, we know, is racism, but it's also deployment. You know, Bloomberg admitted this is the community that we're targeting. If they were exclusively in other communities, wouldn't they be pretty much at risk, too? No, and that's what's interesting. So there's a lot of people who believe that the presence of police leads to police violence okay. or that there's a relationship between uh, violent crime and police violence, right? That, like, there's some places where it's just more the city or the area is more dangerous. So because it's more dangerous, it's more likely that people have contact with the police and therefore police violence increases. So we did that in 2014. We were trying to figure out is this true or not. So we did this analysis of the 50 largest cities uh, and violent crime in those cities related to police violence. And what you find is that there's no correlation. So there's some places with high amounts of community violence, almost no police violence, low amounts of community violence, high amounts of police violence that like we actually don't see a relationship. What we find, the only thing that's constant is that the police disproportionately abuse black and brown people. Right. The other thing that we know to be true, and this is why it wouldn't be the case uh, if you just dump police in affluent communities, is that the neighborhoods that are the safest are not the neighborhoods with more police, they're the neighborhoods with more resources, right? So you think about these, you, when you map crime in cities, it is like almost 100% on the nose, the neighborhoods with like more homelessness, more addiction, more poverty, mm -hmm. right? Like mm -hmm. that is, so you could put a million officers on the Upper West Side, but like all the drug deals on the Upper West Side are not outside, they're inside, right? You're not seeing them outside selling drugs. They're selling drugs in there. They're selling cocaine in their living rooms. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like yeah. you're not gonna see the same sort of like things that allow uh, the police to interrogate people. And the second thing is that like, you know, like I know, they're not stopping and frisking Bobby with his three-piece suit on. They're right. not doing that. Right, right. What about those who have mental health issues? They also, police seem not to know how to deal with that situation either. Uh, again, because I'm conscious of it, you know, I'll see those stories and it seems like that's happening too frequently. But just how big are those numbers when it comes to police responding to a mental health crisis or mental health situation and the person gets killed? Yes, yeah, so I wish we had more good data around this. So let me just back up around the data so I can answer your question. So in America, if you get killed by a police officer in a newspaper or like a media source doesn't write about it, then you don't exist in the data set. So any number you've ever seen ever about the number of people the police kill comes from the aggregate of media reports because the government doesn't keep official numbers. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. there have been years where like the state of Florida has has reported zero people killed by the police, which we know is just <laughs> not true. Right? Right, right. So that's like the first we have the best data about death general, like not really anything else, but like, did they die? And it's almost only because like they died, right? So we don't really have great disaggregated data at scale about anything else, about assaults, about verbal abuse, sexual abuse, about mental health, because these things aren't logged mm -hmm. by police departments. Mm -hmm. So we do know in places where we have a little bit more data, we know that there's an overrepresentation of targeting of mental health, people with mental health crises. We know that there's some pioneers. So like Eugene, Oregon is an interesting city because in Eugene, uh, non-police are the first responders for medical health issues, like mental health issues. So like those things, that's an interesting model. Mm -hmm. Hasn't been scaled successfully anywhere else yet, but there are some places that are pairing up uh, social workers or crisis response teams that are not officers, not armed officers to come out when they're crises. So those things are promising. But again, we'd remind people that uh, that we could think about crime differently if we invested the money other places. That what's interesting about police and mass incarceration is that 
there's no data to say that like jail decreases crime or like helps people rehabilitate. And there's a ton of data to show that like the presence of police doesn't necessarily make crime go down. New York City is a perfect example of this. Is in the past five years, the New York City Police Department has done a slowdown. Do you know what a slowdown is? Yeah, yeah. So they've done a slowdown yeah. twice. Do you know what happened when they did this? The slowdown is when uh, right. the police stopped policing. Stop police, right. Or they stopped right. arresting. Right. Uh, do you know what happened both times? No. Crime decreased 20%. With the slowdown. With the slowdown. <laughs> so a lot of people who think that like when arrests go down, crime must increase, right? Because right. like what, what's happened to the bad guys? Yeah. Both times crime decreased, right? Wow. Yeah. So it's like a powerful reminder that like this stuff that they're doing isn't like, that's actually not making people safer. There will always be a small percentage of, of people in the world who just enjoy evil. Yeah. You'll Do always you, have crime. Do you, well, not crime. See, this is why we tease out crime, because, like, jaywalking is a crime, right? Yeah, well, okay, that's like, what you're saying. Right, right, so, like, right. there'll be some people who, like, engage in evil, right? Like, that people okay. who, like, All just right. want to murder, right? Right. But they will be a fraction of a fraction of a, fr and do we keep a 30,000-member police department for those three people? I don't know. Yeah, yeah. We could put that money somewhere else. But now Bloomberg will say stop and frisk decrease crime. There's no real evidence of that, is there? No, so what's interesting about New York City, and this is like Giuliani too, right? Because like broken windows and we right, can stop and frisk, right. is that what something must change in communities when you lock a ton of people up? Like a whole lot of things change, right? And like that's the Bloomberg thing. It's like you incarcerated a generation of people. So not only did crime, but like educate, all, all these things change very quickly because you sent people away for a really long time. But when we think about crime specifically is that there's a really interesting study that Sharkey did uh, where he shows that in New York City and in other places around the country, we can actually map the decrease in crime to the rise in community services. That for every 10 nonprofits that move into a neighborhood, a violent crime decreases statistically. And that makes sense, right? Because people have more resources and are able to make different choices. So think about how communities would change if all of a sudden everybody had access to addiction treatment, or like all of a sudden everybody had access to food, or all of a sudden everybody had access to childcare, right? Like suddenly communities change in dramatic ways, and we believe that that is actually what happened. There's also a really fascinating study around uh, the rise of cell phones, like mm. in the 90s and the 2000s, that the rise in cell phones might have led to one of the biggest decreases in violence in major cities, because mm. no longer are drug dealers having to do in-person transactions because mm -hmm. they can do them electronically. Wow. It's fascinating. <laughs> it is, that is fascinating. Um, what do we know about gender when it comes to police violence? So we know that almost all of the victims are men. Like almost, It's like yeah. over 95% of the people killed by the police are men. Uh, we believe that most of the victims who are not killed are not necessarily men. So we think that like women are overrepresented in sexual assault, right? verbal abuse, those sort of things. We don't have great data at the national level because police departments don't really have to report that, whereas death, even if they don't report it, it's like we know because you killed somebody. Uh, we also don't know a ton about gender inside of police departments, but what we, we do know is that departments with more women uh, tend to kill and harm people less. Mm. That is sort of what we know. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, that if you have to have a police officer, women are less violent and less aggressive. Uh, so that's sort of interesting. Do we know anything about when it comes to African-American police officers? Does that make a difference? It's sort of like, there have been some studies, but nothing that is too conclusive. Okay, okay. Uh, You know, I think that in general, what we find is that uh, black officers turn blue, right? That like, yeah, there's yeah. something about the profession uh, that just, 
encourages people to participate in behavior in a certain way. But we do know that's fascinating. So we spend our time on two things. One is these policies and rules. And the second is around accountability. So in places like New York, as a good example, in New York City, you can't file an anonymous complaint against a police officer. So you can call in a complaint and they can take it anonymously from you, but they can't charge the officer, like the CCRB, the Civilian Review Board, they can't charge the officer without your name, without you essentially signing your name and address. Now, I don't know about you, but I can think about a lot of people who would never, ever sign their name no. and address on no. a complaint against a police officer. No, no. In places like California, the law says that any investigation of an officer that lasts more than a year can never result in discipline, regardless of the outcome. That's crazy, right? Yeah, that so is. we track those things around the country. What you find is that the police have set up a system that almost guarantees that they can't be held accountable. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned, too, in terms of accountability, you mentioned the lack of, of recorded data. Is there any, because I know at different times, in, in different periods of time, there have been conversations about uh, legislation to make that happen, to, to have data reported, data statistics. Is there any conversation about that on a national level, or legislation that would bring that about where they would actually have to report a lot of these inc- incidents that don't get reported at all? So national level, shaky. But California probably is one of the best state laws that we've ever mm-hmm. seen around police mm-hmm. violence. So if you go to policescorecard.org, uh, you can see this analysis that we did at the state level with California data, and it's fascinating. So in California, departments have to report things like every time an officer said they saw a gun and there was no gun, right? So we have that sort of data. or They have to report like L.A. for 2016-18, and over 80% of the cases, the only type of force they used was lethal force. Like, they didn't use any force before deadly force, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, they have to report those sort of things, and that is fascinating. So, that's good. More MIP after this message. When I lived in D.C., we got the Civilian Complaint Review Board legislation passed, all of that. Um, Marion's last term as mayor. So, I chaired the NAACP Police Task Force, and some of us actually got the opportunity to teach classes at the police academy in D.C. And one of the classes I taught was the historical relationship between African-Americans and law enforcement. That culture, that police culture, believes that we existentially are as much a threat to them as they are to us. They really believe that, DeRay. And I watched it. And I'm not talking about white officers. There were some black folks in there, even a couple black women. I was like, I thought they were going to shoot me on the spot. But it's it's amazing how they have bought into, you know, that King Kongification of us as black people and that we exist literally. Some of them literally think we walking around outside just as ourselves plotting to kill them and take them down. And I don't know. I have no idea. I'm trying to figure out what moment in history or in what place, you know, we have like in an organized, in a collective way, targeted and taken out police officers other than in the song uh, that they did, I mean, that was the only, and again, that was just a, a fantasy type thing. Right. But some of them really believe it. And that's, that's where I think that, you know, police community relation things come from. They really have internalized that. And so they, they pretend as if they fear us, and some of them wrongfully actually do. Do you know the single biggest cause, the single greatest reason, uh, uh, the single most cause of death amongst officers? No, what? Suicide. It's not us. Yeah, yeah. Right? I can believe that. So, like, you have a lot of issues to work on in the profession that don't include anybody in communities, right? Yeah, yeah. Like yeah. 40% of police families have domestic abuse. That's not us. We didn't do that, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, but you do think about what, what, imagine another profession where it would be almost impossible to be fired. 
the police, right? Yeah. It's like yeah. almost impossible. So like imagine the culture created in a place where like there it it structurally is impossible to have accountability. A right, whole a right. host of things. Could you imagine in schools if teachers could like kick kids down the stairs and you just come back tomorrow? Like <laughs> that would be the wild wild was in schools. Well, as a former teacher, too, the right wing accused us of that anyway. They said those of us are teachers can do But we know that's not true. Yeah, oh, <laughs> not only, you might not get in trouble by the school, but somebody parent will come up that's there. That's right. You know it's, I mean? it's accountability. Whereas the police are just like, you know, in a lot, well, we, we didn't know this either. In a lot of cities across the country, um, they have bargained these rules about police discipline records. So in places like Cleveland, it used to be until the DOJ came in. In Cleveland, they destroyed discipline records every two years. In Chicago, it's every five years. You know, it's like, nuts in yeah. baltimore they can do every two years just destroy them you're like imagine imagine if doctors we were like we just destroy every complaint against a doctor people would be like eh. right teachers that <laughs> we just destroyed every com like that right. would be wild right. but the police who can who have like so much power in the moment we just like allow you to destroy their discipline records yeah just do whatever so you know i i preach something and i didn't check with you first so i'm gonna run this by you tell me if this will preach you know, we talk about what people need to do down ballot. Police are governed locally, no question about it. So voting in those local races, city council, state legislators, if you really want to do something about police reform, that's what you have yes. to do. And it's sometimes unglamorous. You know, also stretch it and say, look, Dr. King didn't start out as national thing. It was Montgomery. You know, you have to start somewhere. He was dealing with Montgomery, and it affected the national conversation, Birmingham, Selma. And, you know, everybody wants to be a star. Everybody wants to be on Twitter and have a million followers. But if people would just focus, I mean, that is, and that's what it's going to take because it's not like we're just going to come in with a national hammer and do it. Am, am I right about that? Yeah, I think you're right. I think, too, I don't know if I underestimated, but people, even the best, are afraid of going up against the police. Mm -hmm. So when I think about, you know, you think about the civil rights movement is that we got a lot of incredible wins, right? Big wins. Wow. The police are almost wholly unchanged. Like, of the civil rights issues that mattered in the 60s, 70s, the police is, like, the only institution that might actually be worse. Mm. The housing, got some big wins. Segregation, wealth, loans, school, food, welfare. How, like, big wins. The police, same. they are literally, like, same terror, same... You know, I'm interested in how do we find a set of elected leaders who are willing to, like, really stand up to the police? Mm -hmm. I don't know. So, like, de Blasio, mm -hmm. it's like, or anybody. You know, I think about a ton of places where you're like, the leadership at the city level panders a little bit when yeah. one per somebody gets killed, and they're like, oh, this is da da, -da. Right, right, right. But when the rubber hits the road, they are, like, yeah. nervous. They, they want that union endorsement. And then, let's be honest, I mean, I think some of these police departments threaten these elected officials. Then they threaten not to protect them or worse. Yeah. I mean, some of the stuff, and I mean, de Blasio's got problems, but I mean, some of the threats they made against him, I'm like, you know, whoa. I mean, how you going to talk to me like that? I'm the, <laughs> I'm the mayor. So that's a good point in, in terms of that fear. And you think about de Blasio, though, like imagine, I mean, you were a teacher. Imagine how your class, what grade did you teach? I taught high school. You high school. Whew. Uh, I was sixth grade. <laughs> sixth grade. Like imagine if you walked into your high school classroom every day and they knew that they could say and do whatever they wanted to you. And right. The worst thing you do is look at them and be annoyed. Right. Yeah. yeah. That's De Blasio. So like, yeah. of when you don't, you're not holding anybody accountable. Mm -hmm. And this is like, this is stuff that's clear. It's not like it's like police officer beat up and stole money. 
two-day suspension. You're mm-hmm. like, well, mm-hmm. de Blasio, the public would be completely behind you mm-hmm. if y'all just started suspending every officer for like gross misconduct, or, like mm-hmm. firing them. You wouldn't lose the public. You would right. lose the police for a moment. But like the public would have your back. And would it be a hard, like rough interim? Sure. But would you win on the backside? Yes, because like even white people are like, that's crazy. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, I think that's what's weird to me is that I think there are a lot of politicians who have this short-term perspective on like it's gonna it is gonna be bad. They're gonna come out against you. They're gonna say they're not gonna arrest. They're gonna do all that stuff. But like the stuff that we're asking for is like not there's not a lot of gray area. It's like I think you raped that woman. Mm, you probably right. shouldn't be police. You know, right, right. this isn't or like in Baltimore, they were stealing. I don't know if you there's a whole task force that got indicted. They were like stealing pills from pharmacies. Yeah, You're like, yeah, this yeah. isn't like a there's not <laughs> a lot of gray here, you know? Right, right. Agreed, agree. You know, people, criminal justice, mass incarceration. But a, a lot of the people who allowed us about that debate, it's a good point are not as loud about policing. It's like it's two separate and things. And by not as loud, you mean silent. Yeah, <laughs> right, yeah. but it's like two separate things, like policing here, mass incarceration here. But you're right, there's got to be, people have to realize, there's a, I mean, that's a, that's where it starts. It's not even the intersection. You can't get put locked in prison for mass incarceration unless you have been engaged by the police. Like, tell, name the scenarios where you get to jail right. without the police. Like, <laughs> right, I don't, right. I guess maybe somebody turned themselves in. Like, I... I guess you commit a crime and then you just walk down to the police department and give them the evidence. Yeah, like yeah, I, yeah. I don't know when that happens, you yeah. know. But, but that's that a powerful ha- point you make. That has to be a small fraction of whatever, right, you know. Right. That's a powerful point you make. If you don't mind, I'm I'm on tag team with you on that one because people need because every time we massive incarceration, mass incarceration, and then you have to go to a whole another room if people want to talk about police. And it's like two separate workshops. Yeah. No, that don't make sense. And what's interesting when you look at the data, uh, what you find is crime is decreasing. But jail admissions are static, right? So the police are doing what they have all crime be damned. Right. The police are doing what they've they always, always do. done. Like right? It's not a function of crime. Right, right. Like a program. Uh DeRay McKesson, folks, uh, it's an honor to have also, also the author of On the Other Side of Freedom, Pod Save the People, Campaign Zero, uh, at DeRay on Twitter. That's one of the best places to keep up with, best places to keep up with everything that he's doing. Brother, uh, appreciate your, your activism. Oh, it'll take all of us to win. Yeah, it will. And we'll be right there with you. Thank you, Duray. Thanks for getting woke and listening to Make It Plain. Please remember to listen, like, and wherever you get your podcasts, please give the show a five-star rating. And please do spread the word. Let's all continue to pray for each other during this pandemic and this police-demic. If all hearts and minds are clear, it has been made plain. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to fifteen hundred dollars back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet 
BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.